Welcome and thank you for joining us in season three of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Good afternoon, Joel. Howdy, Eric. How are you, man? I'm all right. I'm all right. I had uh, I had one of those meetings today. You ever have these where you schedule kind of a coffee with a congregant that you haven't talked to in a long time? No set agenda necessarily, and two hours. And nice. Uh, you know, talked about temples. Yeah, like, and this is someone who you know I consider a, a leader, longtime member, respected member of the community, and. Um, you know, just sharing ideas about how temple life has been, what we could improve on, what's what's going on in the community, that sort of stuff. And yeah, other than sitting outside in 40 degree weather, it was great. <laughs> Y'all had to be outside where you like, was there concern about whatever? So you sat outside the whole time? Well, just because I'm not eating or indoors. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, we had coffee and snacks and whatnot. Whoa. Yeah, mine was interfaith conversation today. We have three or four uh, community organizations that are trying to respond to homelessness. Homelessness is not just a big city thing. We're in a tiny little county of only 27,000. But there, there are chronically homeless and emergency homeless and couch surfing, car sleeping homeless uh, around. And we're trying to figure out how as – religious and nonprofit and social sector and government agencies, how to work together to make a smarter response. Wonderful. And that lasted two hours. (laughs) Yeah. I won't ask which one of us uh, had a, had a better time, but I'm I'm sure you did. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, 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 that's what I thought the answer would be. Um, So uh, I don't. I, I think this might be the first week we've recorded where we don't know what each other is going to say. I uh, how right? about that? Yeah, we're just z- throwing zingers at each other. And you promised last week, hey, you're going to look for something not as negative. So I'm expecting you to talk about death, politics, and Israel Palestine today. <laughs> and and link them all together in one. One one rap uh, lyric. Well, those three are basically so, the same, yeah. Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot of overlap for sure. So I wouldn't call it happy per se, but, I, but at the same point, it's not a depressing topic, although it, it is kind of somber and serious. And so a little, a little context. Um, it, we had our board meeting last night, the first Tuesday of every month, and um, it's the first board meeting we've had since the incident at in Cotleyville, Texas. And so, you know, security was on the agenda, and we have a security meeting tomorrow uh, to talk about training that we're hopefully going to get done of some sort, which is, a, I think, a, a good thing for us to do. And we've been talking about that for a while. It's not a knee-jerk response or anything like that. Um, and one of our board members uh, at the end of the conversation where we were talking about like practicalities, you know, we're going to meet, we're going to come up with recommendations, et cetera, et cetera. He said, you know, what would be interesting is having kind of a, either a moderated conversation or, 
you know, discussion amongst members about safety, but from an emotional and spiritual standpoint and not a practical. For example, like we just take it for granted now that we're going to have a guard at services. And like, what is that about? Does that do anything to our notions of, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but, uh, you know, does that make us think differently about our spirituality? And, and then from a Jewish context, what does it mean to feel safe and to be safe, which are, of course, two different things um, with, again, some overlap, but feeling safe and being safe are not one in the same by any means. And, uh, and then I started thinking about, you know, th this term that has come up a lot, certainly in recent years, you know, I'm in a quote unquote safe space, you know, where, where I can say this to you because I know this is a safe space. And what does that mean? What should it mean? What shouldn't? And so that kind of gestalt has been very much in my mind since last night in terms of well, first of all, uh, just a, a practical thing of, you know, this might be a, a, an interesting kind of intimate conversation and learning to do with congregants. Um, but also in my own thinking, just in my own thinking of security and safety. And I mean those words in the largest context possible and not, you know, I have an alarm in my house and a dog and we have a police officer and an alarm and all, you know, other things at synagogue. But from a very elevated viewpoint, what does it mean to be secure, to be safe? And and I, I think uh, it, it, it's a it's a, something I don't think we think about enough. We think about the practicalities a lot, especially at our houses of worship. You know, when are we hiring a guard? That That sort of thing. Um, so yeah, that, it just it got it got me thinking on on all those tangents. And have there been any other incidents that have captured your board's attention recently? Um, other than the Colleyville, no, uh, except to say that you know the world, and this isn't anything new, but that the the world can be a scary place sometimes as a minority. And so, you know, th that's, I mean, that's been with us for thousands of years, right? That, like that's the kind of healthy dose of neuroticism or, or worry, or frankly, just, you know, being very serious, the, the reality that I think a lot of minorities live in as part of their lives. Mm -hmm. So what is the, like, as y'all were thinking about it, the practical security, the logistics of a presence or a guard or locked doors or security systems, those are logistical issues. What does the conversation even look like or sound like around the theological, impractical implications of our need slash desire, sometimes irrational expectation of security? Well, and that's the that's the point is that we've never had that theological framing, and it's it's not something we've done in frame. I don't think it's something I've heard before. There, I mean, of course, everyone wants to be safe in their houses of worship. Everyone, um, but I don't know that we've come at it from an emotional, spiritual place, and and much more out of a 
okay, like you said, th- this is what we're going to do, you know, in terms of logistics. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think it is important. And it's also, it's a different, as I, I said at the board meeting, because someone suggested kind of having the two together, like let's have the training along with this. And I said, you know what? I think that these are very different. And quite frankly, I think there are people that would be hugely interested, for lack of a better word, in attending this sort of conversation than would in necessarily attending, okay, this is what you do, God forbid, with with a shooter, right? Yeah. And vice versa. Um, that they're, you know, they're very different programs and achieve different ends, quite frankly, as well. Well, and you and I as clergy, I, I maybe you think of it like this. I, I do. It's that um, the practical should follow the theological. So whatever practices we're going to have together as a community, even around security practices, I don't want them to be culturally wise I want them to be theologically consistent with who we say we are and this God that we worship together and follow and obey. You know, it, because of our faith practices, what does our security logistics look like? As opposed to just hiring a security agency or a local cop to come tell us what to do. If we hire them, they'll just tell us, lock every door. Always have armed security guards on post at every point of entry. Use metal detectors, right? You know, they would go all the way. And as a house of worship, you can't do that. You've got to have a different place, a different feel as people enter, which implies that you're taking a risk to enter. And, you know, I think I, I think that's a healthy tension so long as we're not on either extreme. The you know, the tension on the one hand to be warm and welcoming and embracing, especially of, you know, a guest or someone we don't know. I mean, you know, so like the person I had coffee with today, you know, she knows many, many, many members of Temple, right? So, you know, her walking in the door is not going to be an issue, but someone that we've never seen before. Mm. um, And, you know, we want to balance that welcomeness with the you know security and that that tension is is a valid one and uh, i just read that it was less of an article and more of an infographic kind of the the power of hello and it it was interesting because lots of times when people see someone they don't recognize or that seems suspicious in some way some of which might be inappropriate like based on you know race or something like that that, you know, there's like whispers about it. Do you know who that person is? Why is this person here? Right. And what this suggest, what this suggests that we do, and by we, I don't mean clergy, because we're probably not the person that's going to see them first. We're preparing for the service. We're talking with the family that has the honor or whatever it is. But that the person goes up to them and just says, hello, how can I help you? And, you know, 95% of the time, from their response, you're going to get it. You're, you're going to, and got, you know, hopefully 95, if not higher percent of the time, you're going to be like, oh, they're here as part of a class assignment, or they're friends with this member who invited them, or they called the rabbi a week before and the rabbi invited them to services, whatever it is. But to, act, you know, rather than going around whispering about it, to just, 
say hello and in, in that case you're you know you're you're kind of being you are being welping welcoming and you're kind of finding out a little bit about this person without being like why are you here <laughs> <You know? laughs> well safety has it's a loaded word like i guess what we're talking about is bodily safety like i'm not going to get stabbed or shot and bleed out and die if i'm in this space and we're going to do our best to minimize those risks but as you were pointing out you know, in religious locations in North America, we've seen priests who hurt kids, right? We've known that there are abusive, emotionally abusive, verbally abusive bullies who are who hurt other church members. We've we've known people to not say hello as a sign of hospitality but as a who the hell are you and to <laughs> to make the visitor yep. feel oh you're not one of us why are you here kind of safety and and then even if you start to look at emotional not just physical safety you also have to ask safety for whom like are we only saying that we as members of the synagogue want a safe sanctuary, or are we saying we want to provide a safe space for anybody on the planet that happens to show up here? And that's different, right? To not say, I need for me and my people to have a safe place to retreat to on Sabbath night, but to say we want to provide, because of who we are, a safe space for anybody that needs it. Yep, that's exactly right. And that's where the theology probably comes in. If if you think of it theologically, it has to be the latter of those two. It, it is not about us. Um, it is about us providing something for others as well. And we get it, the benefits of that, obviously, but we don't ever think of it as crafting something that is just safe for us. Right, right. Christians have a, a, a hard time with this um, because our theology – is dependent on a sacrificial, self-giving servant who's like the way that he says God is. Um, God is not uh, separate, aloof, um, wanting to be away from and untouchable and unchangeable. This God in the, the fleshed Jesus is somebody who is willing to sacrifice one's own self in order to make things better for others. So in a Christian church, when you start talking security, well, we have to keep ourselves safe from those who are outside. And you lay right beside that a Jesus who said, actually, no, I'm, I'm willing to risk great things upon myself for the ones who are considered the outside. You you lift up a Christian hypocrisy, a theological hypocrisy, in trying to be too safe. Um, and at this little church, we have some conversations about that, where we've moved our our children's time mid worship. Um, they were all the way around the corner in a deep back end of the building in a Sunday school room. We moved them to the back of the sanctuary, and that was. That's too loud. That's too distracting. So now they're in the in the, what we call the narthex, the foyer of the church. And as a visitor with a family enters, they see, wow, there's a dedicated space for kids here. Well, we've got some folks here saying, why did you put the kids by the door? If a, um, a mass shooter was to come in, they would shoot the kids first. And, you know, you're like, wow, that technologically might be accurate, but 
in a Christian church, we don't lock doors, and we don't we don't plan for that. Now, I'm writing down theological hypocrisy. I'm definitely using that <laughs> uh, in many in many places. But it, is that really true uh, on a practical level that you don't lock doors? I hope not. Um, for theological reasons. Now, when we leave, we lock doors, right? Uh, yeah, of course. And the way we do it here is we lock the side doors, but not the main door. So if somebody's coming um, to the door, we want them to have access to where they don't have to knock. They don't have to you know, pull on a door and it, and it be locked. And then they have to be given permission based off of what they look like or smell like. <laughs> now, is that – and is that true even during kind of a random – you know, like right now it's Wednesday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Is that true right now? Uh, right now, some of the building is leased to a daycare and they lock and close the door. Yeah. Okay. But if it – if the daycare is not there, in other words, like on a non-program yeah. or service, yeah. someone can then still there's walk a bell, the door? right? So we the main doors are are locked for daycare, and the side door it has a magnet and a, a push code, and you ring a bell, and Patty figures out who you are and lets you in. Um, and the only reason we do that typically is because there are times when only one staff person is here alone. Um, when there are multiple staff right. people here, I am comfortable with the door being more open. If they are, but we've decided to to be a little more careful. And, and see, I think this highlights the conversation that this person started last night in that, like, we, you know, if it's just our administrator in the building, like she is right now, as you and I are recording, or if it's just me in the building, you know, when this, be, either before she gets there or after she leaves, whatever, I'm glad the door is locked. Now, I'm also... In addition to that, I'm sad that I'm glad that the door's locked, there right? Is, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, there was a church that I was at Decatur, and it was right on the main road. And we did at times, we would have open sanctuary time, when we would open the front doors of the sanctuary, and the, and we would say on the sign, open sanctuary today, you know, nine to four, or whatever, and and the idea was, if you want to come in and sit, come on. There's a there's a pew. If you take a nap, fine, right? If you plink around on the piano, wow. okay, right? Um, it's an open space. Very few people ever used it, but I loved the reality of that leadership group saying, we want to provide this. Now, the idea was... We need people to have a safe place to pray, right? But for me, it was I want to give people whose feet hurt a place to sit down and rest and take their shoes off for a minute. Or if it's really hot, to have some air conditioning. Or if it's really cold, to have some heat. It was it was not about a, a, offering a religious space as much as it was just a hospitable space. Well, and in that case, you are doing what um – my colleague did in Colleyville of, right. you know, taking the person in and, and, and serving them, you know, they could tell that they were cold and, and giving them a, 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 you know, cup of soup or, or hot tea. And, you know, I was speaking frankly, again, with my congregant uh, and friend that I, I had coffee with earlier. And, you know, I said, and again, this is possibly a hypocrisy, uh, but it's the reality is, if I'm by myself in the building, 
I don't know that I would have done that. Oh. And it may and it makes it breaks my heart that I don't think I would have done mm -hmm. that. I'm not happy with that. Mm -hmm. Now, if you know, we do have a a guard. Uh, you know, I don't know how effective they are. That you know, that's that's a whole different conversation. If the guards there, I would be much more likely, and I'd like to say that I would do it. And we have had people knock on the door, you know, either asking for money or asking for things, and I have engaged them, you know, in, in humane conversation. Um, but if I'm the only one in the building, I, I don't know that, that I would. And again, that it breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, as a new pastor, you, know, you and I both joined this crazy clergy world around the same time, I guess. We've been doing it for a while now, but I remember as a newly called installed clergy person, the first time I had a situation like that, you know, where somebody kind of knocks on the door from the street and you're either alone or it's just you and the administrator. And how am I going to do this? And the, the fear security conversation goes on in the back of your head all in about a, you know, one fourteenth of a second. And on top of that is the grand theology that you've been given, like, not how am I going to, but why do I do what I'm about to do? And and I made a few quick decisions, you know, early on that I've sometimes I don't follow them. But one is you are going to be invited into the pastor's study, and you are going to sit on my best piece of furniture, the same one that every other high giving member or very grumpy members that saw and to tell me what they want different. You are going to be given something to eat and or drink, even if you're not hungry. And it's not a sign that, oh, you look hungry. You look thirsty. It's just, would you like something? Would you like a coffee? Would you like a Coke? Would you like a granola bar or some caramel coated popcorn? Um, I'm going to get your name and I'm going to let you tell me some of your story and I'm going to ask questions. And then I'll see what you need and do my best to provide it. But that those little steps of they're risky. And um, but my theology suggests I have to take that risk. And I've had people tell me, no, you don't. And and what what they're thinking is, but we need to keep you safe. And what I'm thinking is I need to follow Jesus, I guess, like. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he'd go see lepers, you know, he'd, yeah, uh, he ate with sinners and tax collectors and dang it, <laughs> safety just was not the issue for him as much as it was compassion and risky compassion. I like that. Ris yeah. Because it's easy to be compassionate or it's easier sometimes for you, for me to be compassionate through the security speaker or in an email or but yeah but i i appreciate the the power of the face to face sitting down mm -hmm. conversation um yeah i mean obviously there's a lot of of more that can be said there so i don't know if my, you know, my topic is definitely not a happy one, but I wouldn't call it a sad one. <laughs> so are you going to moderate this theological safe space sanctuary well, I, I mean, conversation? 
Yeah, I mean, pot, you know, the idea is maybe to do it with a psychologist. I actually want to talk to Emily about it. You know, my, my wife is a clinical oh. psychologist who's her, one of her specialties is trauma. And so this, you know, it, it fits in. It's certainly in her wheelhouse. I don't know if we'd be the right yeah. pair to do it. Um, but, uh, but so, yeah, I, I'm certainly not, I, I would certainly participate in some way. Um, as the rabbi, but, uh, you know, working it out in my head mm-hmm. yeah, as this is a, a an idea that came up very recently, <laughs> but uh, I think it's an important one. Well, yeah. Uh, one thing I've learned is a sanctuary cannot be a trigger-free space. Um, you, it can be a gun-free space. You can no weapons allowed. But the thing I've learned is with the diversity of human beings that come into our synagogues and sanctuaries and churches – we're probably going to say something that triggers somebody's trauma. We might read a story from Scripture absolutely that hits a little absolutely. too close to home for somebody. And the question is, does that mean it isn't a safe space for them? And I've decided, no, it, it is still a safe space for them to feel, talk about, cry, re-experience, and heal from whatever old trauma that they have. But uh, safe space for some people means uh, denial or avoidance of all harm. And for me, safe space means uh, a safe space to be honest about what was and is and a promise to be with you as you heal from it and go forward, not a place of denial or sweep under the rug or avoidance. Um, there can be people who can't talk about it yet, right? And if you catch them early in a sanctuary or sermon, it can hurt them, and you might lose them forever. But that doesn't mean the safe wasn't space. The space wasn't safe. Yep, I, that's a great articulation of that. Uh, what uh, have you been thinking about? <laughs> All right, so. Um, this one's kind of weird, but I, it's hopeful. You know, we've been talking about some faith and science stuff, COVID mostly. What does it look like for somebody to claim a religious exemption <laughs> to to COVID? Oh my gosh, there's no such thing, right? What does it look like for people of great faith to say, I'll just trust God to heal me? Um, or for people of great faith to go get the boosters and still be scared to death of COVID. So this whole faith science thing. And it's had me scrolling around in some uh, medical slash science spaces. And they always point you right to, oh, if you were interested in this article, you might also be interested in this one. Well, the one um, that I'm pulling up is New York Times. It is by a, a gal named Gina Galata. Galata is from February 2nd. So, um, And it has to do with a special scientific procedure called CAR T-cell treatment that sometimes – cures leukemia. And when I say sometimes, I mean it appears that this treatment, they take the T cells out of your body, they modify them, they they change your T cells to attack the leukemia cancer cells. They put your T cells modified back into you. And in one of these patients, it killed between three and a half to seven pounds of cancer cells, and 12 years later, he's in full remission, no sign of the cancer at all. 
Like, holy cow, right? They found it. In other people, it doesn't do anything. In fact, it makes them really sick and it might even kill them when you put it put it back in. And in some people, even though they modified it perfectly, even though they taught that T-cell of yours how to kill the cancer cell only, it can kill other cells it wasn't intended to. It gets kind of suspicious or nervous and it starts killing other things it's not supposed to and it makes you really sick. So as I read it, I was ecstatic. I was thinking about how, what, just 30, 40 years ago, leukemia is a death sentence. It's over, right? There's no cure. Um, You can do chemo, radiation, whatever, but it's you're going to have it forever. There's no remission. It's it's the end. Um, and they found a way to, with science, to sometimes heal it. And other times, it does nothing. In fact, might make you sicker or or you might die. And I, yeah, I, I wonder as a pastor how to advise somebody with a life-threatening illness like leukemia if they were given that option to take that yep. treatment that has a b or c what you would advise them to do and what does it look like for people of faith to lean on risky science in order to give us more life yeah that that's uh it reminds me too of what is happening with COVID. And I think some of the frustration around what's happening with COVID is that there's, I think an expectation by some that science is about answers. And so what people see as, Oh, the CDC is waffling and changing their guidelines. I mean, and yes, there there's a little bit of bureaucracy and there's a little bit of mismanagement and human error and all of that. But there's also, you know, Studies come out that changes what we know. Mm-hmm. know for, was it you or was it somewhere else? I was listening to a podcast and they, you know, 40, 50 years ago, doctors would on publicly say, you know, smoke cigarettes because it helps with digestion mm-hmm. or it helps with other things. Anxiety, and, right. And that's, yeah. yeah. And, you know, so science changes, but. But in this case, and I was looking it up as you spoke, it's all it's all over today. So clearly something was publicly published today um, that all the you know all the outlets uh, got their hands on. Um, but I think it's very much a religious idea, certainly in Judaism anyway, that there are no guarantees. And you know whenever we go through a procedure, you know, well, doctor, what are the chances that this succeeds? And you know there's always the, well, either it it's, you know, a very common procedure. Like when I had my first colonoscopy a few years ago, like nobody asks, and thankfully, right? Like what, what's the, you know, what's the mortality rate on, on colonoscopy procedures? But you certainly ask that about all sorts of other operations and then families and individuals have to weigh that kind of, you know, risk, re- risk reward spectrum. And, and I think you yeah. know, you're making that very clear with regard to, to this. It feels like there's and there's a paradox here, and maybe it's a religious paradox, or maybe me as a Christian um, who talks about death and resurrection a lot, 
uh, maybe it's more real for me than it might be for you. So that's why I thought of it as an interesting topic for us. But so I tend to sell and push two aspects that are in conflict with one another, if I'm honest. One, I teach people to fight for life, for the life of all humans, for a fullness and wholeness of life for yourself, your friends and families, your strangers around you, and even your enemies. Work for the wholeness and and peace of fullness of life. And when I translate shalom, it doesn't just mean peace. It means fullness and wholeness too. So whatever it is that we're working for as a religious community, it has to do with fighting for and insisting on fullness of life for everyone. At the same time, I find myself selling and pushing and reminding people, do not be afraid of death. Death has no sting on you, right? It comes for us all. And this great God who made you from nothing can remake you from nothing. And and in the, the Jesus that we worship, promises to. Uh, so death is not something to be uh, afraid of. It is not something to avoid at all costs, right? It is something that when it comes, when its time is, is here and it's unavoidable, you you meet it just like you would dinner time. And it's you realize it is a separation, it is an ending, it is a transition, but it's not it's not it, uh, the way we talk about it. And I am now, you know, as I got into this article, I'm now realizing can I say both of those things at the same time, or do I need to pick one? Fight for life, or don't be afraid of death. Um, is it hypocritical or oxymoronic for uh, for my theology to hold both of those at the same time? Uh, I think it's a it's a dialectic, but I wouldn't call it hypocritical. I also think that. Um, you know, on one foot, so to speak, as I'm thinking about it, as you say it, because we really didn't know what we were saying <laughs> this week, um, lest our listeners think we were, were so prepared, that depending on circumstance, one takes priority over the other. You know, when, when I'm pastoring or visiting someone who is very obviously in their last months, weeks, days of life, it's not a fight for life. It's a acceptance. I don't know that I'd use the word surrender, but I'd use the word acceptance and you know urging that person to have those meaningful conversations with family and and loved ones to to say goodbye and to say it with integrity and with love and and intentionally. Um and then there there are times when it's very much a, about fighting for life. I mean in in Judaism, we, we we talk about the the power of the moment all the time, and that part one of the reasons that our lives are so holy and so filled with potential is precisely because of mortality. That we don't have all the time in the world, therefore we need to do it now, not tomorrow. You know, like I say, I'm going to work out tomorrow, and then of course don't. No, you say you're going to work out today. I'm going to do it right now. And of course, I'm saying working out, which is only about me, but that, that applies to caring about other humans and fighting for justice and all those things that we talk about a lot. 
So no, I don't think that's a hypocrisy at all. Yeah, it's um, I've sat with folks right who um who somehow get cured of something, and you think when I visited them or when I heard the story, I thought, uh oh. And then I've sat with folks who it seemed like a minor thing, and then they're in hospice, right? There's there's no way, and for us to help them heal, all we can do is help them prepare and accept, as you say. And and I'm okay in both of those roles as a pastor. And I have I have theological zones of me that that work in both of those places. But I don't. Um, this leukemia study and the reality of it. I, my guess is I would encourage people to take the risk of the study. Well, go for it. If you want to, if you want to fight, go for it. And if you don't, we'll be with you all the way. I understand. Um, and and I I could do with that. Some cool science in this thing. There's apparently two different cell types. There's one that's really aggressive against cancer once it's modified. And then there's another kind of cell type that supports the aggressive cell type. And, and when they put the T cells in you, they have to replenish your supporting type because you're aggressive type. You know, it's weird science. In the person that got healed of leukemia, the aggressive type of cell changed itself back to a supporting type. So, and they were like, the doctors are really confused by that. He doesn't, he doesn't have any leukemia and he doesn't have any aggressive cells anymore, even though that's what they put in him. They retreated wow. and changed their type back. And the doctors are saying basically that um, they think he's operating like a healthy body, that the issue with leukemia isn't that you have any cancer cells, is that your main immunity system doesn't have enough to keep it at bay. So what they did is they knocked out the overwhelming a number of leukemia cells and the few that he still has wandering in his body, the supporting ones can fend off like whack-a-mole. <laughs> they, they talked about it. But, um, you know, he talks, there was only three people who tried this X years ago, 10, 12 years ago, and he's still alive today because it worked in him. Um, a sad side note, one of the other guys that got healed in the study from leukemia died last year from COVID. Oh. And you think you were saved from science, by science, from friggin' leukemia, and then COVID beat you. Like, please. Which could have been preventable. Yes. I, you know, it doesn't say whether or not he was vaccinated, doesn't say whether or not he was a mask wearer or took ridiculous risks or whatever. But you think, oh my gosh, <laughs> maybe it was just. Right. You know, susceptible. All right, Studley. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. Did you remember that that was my nickname in high school, Studley? Or did you just use that word? I just made. I mean, no. by the way, self. You just used yeah. it. That's so funny. No, it wasn't. Uh, You're it was just saying that. That was not it, your nickname. No, no. It. Well, wait, wait, wait. Let me let me uh, <laughs> clarify. It was, but it was self-given. What? And then everyone would call me Studley, but to make fun of me. I called myself Studley Linder. Oh, not my best days, <laughs> high school. Not my best days. Oh, boy. 
<laughs> no, I did not know that. That is hilarious and awesome. Yeah. And now that we all know it, yeah. we shall all be using it more frequently. <laughs> Rabbi Studley. Well, Joel, I will look forward to speaking to you next week. Maybe seeing you online one of these days. <laughs> I'm there occasionally, but online is even more dangerous than in person. Uh, IRL is so much better than <laughs> social media. <laughs> Not, not incorrect. Not incorrect. Well, great talking with you, Joel, as always, and uh, hope all you listeners are doing great and keeping it real out there. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realigenpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.